if you've been with us for any time, you know that uh, we're in the book of Ephesians, uh, made new to live new. Um, the first three chapters, which we've been through, kind of talk about what's true, the big truth, and we'll uh, note that a little bit today. Um, but the second half of the book, where we're, where we're at, we've just uh, begun into the second half of the book, talks about how to live. So you've been made new, now you live new. Um, and as Doug mentioned uh, in, in the prayer, the, the last, last week we talked about how point number one for Paul, he's saying this is your number one goal, don't give up on this, guard the unity of the Spirit. Guard this unity that God has created in this place. It's fragile. It can fall apart. You didn't make it, but you've been tasked with defending it. Today we're going to talk, well, Paul's going to talk, about the first steps in accomplishing that mission. If you wouldn't mind uh, standing, um, I'm going to read uh, from, from Ephesians. Paul says, And he, Christ himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect, complete man or human being, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, may all of us grow up in all things into him who is the chief, the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint, every part supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the whole body for the edifying of itself in love. You may be seated. Grow up. I heard that a lot. Still do. From time to time. That's the, the thrust of, of this text. It's grow up. So we're going to start with the problem. We're going to hear Paul, as he's, he, he, you can almost feel it in his language. He's just frustrated because he's seen this thing over and over. This is one of the later letters that Paul writes. And so he's been around the church a long time, probably 20, maybe even 30 years. And he's seen it in all of its different iterations, all the different ways that people do church. And there's one thing he sees over and over, and it frustrates him a little bit. Look at, look at the, uh, the, the middle right here of the text. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Grow up. He's seen all these people. He's seen Christians and, and he's seen them, you know, grow. Uh, they, they, they come to faith. They believe in Jesus. They hear the good news. And then um, something comes along that just grabs their ear and they're like, oh, I like that too. Uh, in, his, in the historical situation, Christianity, when it first starts out, and, and Paul's experienced this a little bit, you can see it sometimes in the background of what's going on, what he says in Ephesians, um, Christianity grows up battling against a heresy that we um, kind of call Gnosticism now. Gnosticism is a, is a, is a word it kind of derives from knowledge, but it, it turns out that as the church is growing up, as the church is, is, is expanding, there's these other groups that come in with um, pagan philosophy, and they kind of try and marry it 
to Christianity, to, to the true faith. And, and one of the things they talk about is they, they talk about having like secret knowledge and stuff. Um, this, this special uh, insight into the, into the true nature of the universe. And what's so crazy is they'll even use the Old Testament, these Gnostics. They'll come up and they'll, they'll draw this passage and this passage, this thing and that thing. They never really you know, pay attention to the context. Uh, but they, they do. They grab scripture. They know the Bible and they use it. And they, and they say, this is the real truth. This is it. And what's problematic is that the Christians who, who aren't grounded, aren't deep in the faith, they hear that and they say, oh, that sounds good. I want to try some of that. And Paul calls this being a child in the faith, a spiritual child. Well, the metaphors in this, in this text, I mean, it's clear. It's, it's adulthood. It's maturity. It's growing up. We've actually learned quite a bit about growing up, especially in the, in, in the last 20, 30 years in the advent of neuroscience. So we, we can actually take pictures of people's brains, and so we can see literally what happens as people grow up. I want, I want to review a little of this because it's so fascinating how modern science um, is, it actually perfectly parallels Paul's concerns. And so when we think about how we understand uh, human development, we're going to hear exactly parallel to the, the concerns Paul has and, 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 the, and the hope he has. And so I, I just want to look at a little, little bit, just an aside on the neuroscience of growing up. Um, up to about the age of, of, uh, of 12, maybe 13, children actually lack neural equipment for long-term planning. We can see this. We can take pictures of their brains, and I'll show you one in just a second. Uh, we can take pictures of their brains, and we can see that they can't think too far into the future. And, and you know this. Um, if you've raised a child or seen uh, me and my wife try to raise a child, uh, we have to constantly use reinforcers because they're, they're not thinking too far ahead. So they're, you know, a child up to the age of really about 12 really can't see the consequences of what's going to take place. And so a, a kid will, our, our children like to climb on the furniture. And at my parents' house, there's this, um, this banister. Uh, that's, there's a couch up against the banister, and the banister, if you go over it, it's probably about a, a nine-foot drop. Um, and, and it used to be carpet, but now they're putting tile in, so it's going to be even more dangerous than it was before. And so every time I see Olivia like climb up on top of that couch, I'm going to be like, oh, no, that's a terrible choice. Don't you see what's going to happen? And she's going to look at me and be like, nope. What's going to happen is I'm having a great time. And that could end really, really badly. And so, so we, we use uh, both carrots and st- we use the, the whip, the lash, and the carrots uh, to, to keep them from doing stuff they can't even see the consequences of. Uh, this is, and we have to do it all the time. The, the reinforcers are immediate because she can't see into the future. And we do that to build up these strong connections. So even though Olivia can't tell what's going to happen if she goes over the banister, at the very least, she'll understand going up there is a really good way for me to get you know, a, a timeout. Or not going up there is a really good way for me to get a treat or something fun, right? And that's just because children don't have the, the, the cognitive equipment to do what's necessary. Well, this gets a little better once you enter into adolescence. And we can see this. We've seen it in, in, in pictures. At about the age of 15, this is a true fact, an adolescent is, able, is capable of doing everything that an adult can do. Not everything, but really, really close. Uh, adolescents can do almost every single thing that an adult can do. And yet, if any of you have been an adolescent, and I suggest that most of you have, uh, then you know that even though you're able to do it, you don't. You, you lack focus. So even though you know this probably isn't a good idea, and you can plan out of the future, and you know that if you get good grades, and you do these things, that good things are going to come, you can't, you can't control yourself. You, 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 you lack focus. You can't zero in on those sorts of things. 
Moreover, we know that adolescents don't have a very hardened neural network. And what that means is a neuroscientist talk about plasticity, the ability to change, right? So if you have a habit, right, and, and, you're, and you're 13 or 14 years old, it is a lot easier for you to change that habit than it is for someone who has a hardened neural network. Um, so you're open to new ideas, new possibilities. You can do new things, um, and, and you have a lot of potential, as it were. You're, you're, not, you know, you're not down this path, and there's no hope of turning back. It's really actually very easy for you to, to make a change. I saw this in my own life. I learned um, a new language, a difficult language, in my early 20s. Learning languages is hard, but it's a lot easier for young folks than it is for older folks. Adulthood, adulthood is when we no longer have this as, as much plasticity. Um, adulthood is when we're kind of set in our ways a little bit. And it used to be that adulthood started in um, the late teens. Uh, we, we don't have imaging from this because we didn't have MRIs back in the day. But we, we do know that adulthood kind of started early. Since we, we have had neural imaging, adulthood started out as, as hitting most people around the age of 25. And so in the literature, they used to talk about adulthood starting at 25, having the neural, the, the brain of an adult. This has actually been slowed down. So now um, when we take pictures of brains um, in people in their late 20s, sometimes even early 30s, they still look just like they did when they were 15. They haven't grown up. We can see it. It's, 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 it's not, um, they, they, yeah. And, and the reason is, the reason is we found that adulthood actually begins usually when you kind of take ownership of your life. Um, so uh, when, you, when you make some decisions, and typically we, in our culture, we associate this with things like marriage, childbearing, getting a career, um, deciding uh, I'm going to follow this sort of philosophy. Those are, those are big markers for adulthood. Once you do that, your brain starts to change and becomes fixed. Um, I have a picture here uh, of, um, oh, well, yeah, so signal by uh, less established, harder pathways, uh, the neural pathways, not, not as able to, easy to change. In fact, you can change as an adult, but usually it's a crisis situation. In fact, a lot of people in our culture, um, it, uh, September 11th, 2001, that was a moment when their brains radically changed. And they had been going one way, and they changed a lot of their views and commitments because of something that had happened, a crisis. Also things like divorce, having a child, those types of things um, can radically change your ability um, to move. But for the most part, an adult brain is kind of hardened, kind of stable. And you can see this. This is this picture. Um, These are adults, uh, or these are um, pictures of brains that were taken during a... um, during a game. So like it was a game that required some planning. And as these subjects were engaged in thinking about the game, we, we saw what they were doing. The interesting thing is you'll notice it looks like the teen brain more's going on than an adult brain. And that's true. And that's because in teen brains, um, what's happening is they're not sure that neural, the neural pathways aren't set up yet. And so they, the, the brain kind of lights up over here. It lights up over here. Your emotions are more engaged. You're curious. There's a lot happening. By the time you become an adult, your brain kind of knows how to do things. It's kind of set, kind of hardened. And so it doesn't, it doesn't need to go into all these other different ways. It, it kind of knows what to do. You, you've, you've been around the block and you know how to work. And so you see the child doesn't have the equipment. The teen doesn't know what to do with it. And then the adult's like, I got this figured out, no problem. I'm a chess master. So there's some advantages then. You notice that there's advantages to being an adolescent. Look at this. Uh, most of the abilities of the, adult, of the adult, you can do a lot of stuff, but you still have openness to change. You can still do new things. Um, it's awesome. I remember in my early 20s, as an, 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 <laughs> engaging in my ad- extended adolescence, I was like, oh, I can do anything I want. I'm going to go live in a foreign culture. Woohoo! 
Woo! This is awesome. I'm going to go live in Japan. Why not? I'm open to new things. I, I don't feel like I'm just you know, locked into this way of doing life. I'm going to see new stuff. That's really great, right? Well, there's also disadvantages to an adolescence. You have most of the abilities of adulthood, but the openness to change of childhood. That was a joke. Because here I am in my early 20s, and I go into a foreign culture where I could be easily influenced by things that aren't good. And I'm going to be open to those things. I have all of the abilities as an adult to get around and do things and make plans and all that, but I'm, I'm not locked in yet to the way of, of, of doing life well. And I might get turned off the path. Just a little historical background. Childhood and adolescence in the ancient Near East, I call it A-N-E up there, ancient Near East and today, uh, we have very different views of adolescence or childhood um, in the ancient world and in the contemporary world. In fact, in the ancient world, they didn't really make strong distinctions between childhood and adolescence. There was no adolescence. That's something that was actually invented um, in the 1800s to talk about child development. Before that, you were either a child or you were an adult. There was no in-between. Um, in the ancient Near East, young persons were viewed as defective adults. That's, that's how they, th- they thought about it. So you're like, you're here. This is what the ad- ideal is, adulthood. You know, Potter, we talked about paterfamilias a few months ago. Uh, you know, I'm in control. I run the show. I've got command of myself. I run, I'm, I'm, I'm on, uh, yeah. Kids and adolescents are people who just can't do that yet. And so they're broken. <laughs> and the, the idea of education is to fix them. How, how remarkably different. Um, Today, today youth is fetishized. Vitality, freedom. You know, people are always, it's so funny, people ask me about the white spots on my beard, and I'm like, it's not gray hairs. I'm not old. It's a skin disease. I, I, yeah, no, don't worry about it. I'm still under the member, I'm at prime. I was surfing yesterday, no big deal. Isn't that weird? Isn't that funny? And Paul probably shares the ancient view that adulthood is the, is the goal and childhood is um, the problem. Adolescence is the problem. In light of all this, in light of thinking about um, childhood and adolescence and adulthood, both from a neural perspective and from a historical perspective, let's reread what Paul says. He's worried because we should no longer be children tossed to and fro carried about with every wind of of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Spiritual childhood, Paul thinks, is is identical to physical uh, childhood. It's the same deal. Spiritual childhood mimics in every way the the growth and maturation progress uh, from, from young to complete, from small to big, to youthfulness to elderliness. In every way, spiritual life mimics physical life. There's great opportunity in childhood, but there's also great danger. And that's because we experience, as spiritual children, spiritual plasticity. Because we have no deep rootedness in the truth. Before you're an adult in the faith, you're easily tossed to and fro by every, every cute and wonderful and novel and interesting thing that comes along. One of the dangers, in fact, of seminary is that seminary is a time when a lot of ideas you're exposed to and you're not fixed on any one yet. And so this seems good and that seems good and you're not sure if this is the truth or that's the truth. How much more so when a child goes to college 
We think of him in terms of youth, but it could be a young Christian goes to, to, to this mentor or this guru. And they're not deeply rooted in the truth of the scriptures. There's great opportunity because of enthusiasm, but there's great danger because they can be taken off the path, lied to, deceived. And there's plenty of people who want to do that. You're so easily sidetracked by charismatic pied pipers in this state, just as I'm sure my parents were terrified when I went to college and then when I went to Japan that I would fall in with the wrong crowd and start following the wrong people, how much more so should we be concerned that spiritual children, children who aren't uh, in the faith deeply rooted, might follow this person who's got it figured out or that person who says that they've got it figured out and they've got a great smile and they're really passionate and they're so funny and they know what's up, they've figured it out, how quickly and easily we can be turned aside because in our spirit we're naive and impressionable. The problem, Paul thinks, is a truth problem. You need to grasp the truth deeply if you're going to be able to highlight and recognize the lies. Facts about growing up. This is in your note sheets. Growing out of spiritual childhood requires an understanding of and commitment to the big truth of God's nature and work in the world. You gotta understand who God is and what He's done. You gotta be committed to His character and committed to His, His plan. And without that, without that, you're never gonna grow up. There's a question, though. If spiritual childhood looks like these things, no deep rootedness in the truth, uh, you're easily uh, sidetracked by charismatic Pied Pipers, if that's what it looks like, and if we're supposed to get an understanding of and commitment to the big truth of God's nature and work, how does God expect us to get it? How does God expect us to seize this? This is especially prevalent for the people in Ephesus, these Christians, because you and I, we can open up our Bibles, we can go to the book of John. Or we can go to the book of Ephesians. The people in Ephesus can't. They don't have a New Testament. It's being written. And the Old Testament, it's being interpreted this way and interpreted that way. And they're, they're Gentiles, so they're not really deeply rooted in it. They don't know the story of, of God and Israel. Or, or they, they don't maybe get the, 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 the general gist of it, but they're not solid in it. And, and I think we even have a parallel problem. Look, we've got a Bible, right? But we've also got about like 4,000, 5,000 Christian denominations in the world today. 5,000 different ways of interpreting this. And that's just the Christians, the ones who identify as Christians. There's also all kinds of people, spiritual gurus who come around and they'll pick that verse and they'll talk about God as light and you should be light and happiness. Da, 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 da. There's a million different ways of, of interpreting, understanding this, this book, these scriptures. And so we, in some ways, are in a similar situation as those people in Ephesus. How do we know? What do we do? Paul has a solution. Let's go back to the beginning of our text. Verse 11, And Christ himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son, to a perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The solution is Paul gives people gifts, special gifts. And he doesn't talk about all the gifts right here. He just talks about gifts that are associated with teaching. We've talked a little bit about this over the, over the course of our experience in Ephesians. Apostles were those who witnessed the risen Lord. They knew the truth. They'd seen it. 
Prophets were those who were able to correctly interpret what it meant. They understood the Old Testament prophecies. They recognized how Jesus was the Messiah, how he gave the forgiveness of sins, how he ransomed us from death and brought us into new life. They got it. Evangelists were people who were usually unattached, so they could go anywhere and take the news. Evangelists in the, in the ancient Near East, especially in Paul's time, meant you went. You went far. We think of, think of them typically as missionaries today. But they were the ones who carried the message. And then there were those who stayed, pastors and teachers in a local congregation who shepherded the flock and gave the right answers, the right teaching, the right understanding. They themselves learned it from the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, and then they passed it on. Why? So that people would think they were great. Right? People would pay them a lot of money. People, wait, no, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the growing up of the body of Christ. Two things about this. First, um, I've changed edifying to growing up, and growing up is a gloss there. I mean, edifying or strengthening or building up really is uh, the meaning of that term. But growing up is the flavor of these metaphors. Paul's thinking of the body of Christ as a body, as a, as a person, and he's seeing it organically. He's seeing, he's seeing it go from, from uh, spiritual childhood to maturation, to completeness. And so I've tried to keep some of that metaphor here, that growing up, both of an organism and of a person, growing up of the body of Christ. And notice, notice that the, the pastors and teachers and all those people, they're equipping the saints to do this. This is where I get to say something like, it's not my job. (laughs) You're involved. My job and the job of anyone in in ministry who, who takes on a kind of pastoral or teaching kind of office is to equip people, to give them the tools so that they can go and get it done. This is an empowering, catalyzing kind of effort. Think about the the great teacher versus the poor teacher. One major difference between a great teacher, like my dad, and a poor teacher, I'm not going to give any examples, (laughs) is that after a great teacher is done with you, you don't need him anymore. You don't need her anymore. Because that great teacher has built you up and given you all the tools you need. When I was in high school, Mr. Fox, my calculus teacher, he said, almost everyone in this class is smarter than I am. And my goal is at the end of this semester, year, whatever, you don't need me anymore. Because you've got it. You've got the skills, the tools, you've, you've, you've been built up. And so, so I can, I can ride off into the sunset. He, he wrote a Harley. Uh, I can, Ride my Harley off in the sunset knowing that all of your calculus problems in life, (laughs) that you're suited to take care of them. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The, the, the pastors and the teachers, the evangelists, the prophets, the apostles, what they're trying to do is get everybody into that big basic truth of Christianity and not these crazy Gnostic lies. They want everyone to recognize that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. That God has sent the Son who has delivered us. That God, that the, the Spirit seals us for a promised land, a heavenly inheritance, we might think of it. Uh, this, is, this is the truth, guys. That's what we're all called to agree on. That you'll really know the Son of God. And when you've recognized that big truth, when you've been committed to that, you'll grow 
into a fully grown adult, measuring up to the full height of the standard Christ. New King James is a little bit uh, wooden there. New King James says, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's a little weird. But really all Paul's doing is he's using uh, the same language that my parents used. Um, and when I was growing up, I, I remember... It might even be that I think they painted over it because I guess they don't care about my childhood. But um, the garage door, if you, if you open it up, um, when I was a kid, uh, the inside of the garage door, that seam, the into the garage, that seam there had all these lines. And the lines were Tom growing up from like, you know, we moved in in 1985 or something all the way up till when I stopped growing, which I was a late bloomer, so, you know, early college. <laughs> but, it, but you could see it. You could see how I moved, how I got farther and farther and farther, little notches, all the way up, and with dates. And, and I remember as a kid, I'd being so excited, being like, you know, did I make it? This is exactly what Paul's saying. This is what his language is. It's, I want you to become a fully grown adult, getting up there, measuring up to the full height of the standard, Christ. It's like Jesus is the adult. He is the one who gives us a perfect image of what human life is supposed to be. And he's just this tall. He's six foot. Six, one. That's what I'd like to think I am. He's six foot. And, and you, and you, as you're growing up in the faith and you're grasping these truths, you're getting closer and closer and closer to that level. And when you've gotten to that level, notice what Paul said. It's not that you sit there and be happy that you've gotten to that level. What it means to get to that level is that not only have you grown up, but you're actively growing other people up. God gives special gifts of teaching uh, this t- in your note sheets. God gives special gifts of teaching so that every Christian can grow up spiritually and then help others do the same. Your goal is to get to that place, and then your goal is to help others along. And what does this produce in life? Let's go back to the text, um, verse 14, and what we're, we're going to go all the way through to the end. It says that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cuff- cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Again, that language is a little bit weird, but really all he's saying is he's saying, if you look at a working body, right? And um, Galen, he was one of the first ancient real medical uh, gurus. uh, Galen was was one of the first guys who who actually dissected bodies. And he was roughly contemporary to the the time of Paul. And so Paul um, would have known exactly kind of some of the anatomy of human beings. And and they found that when they cut open cadavers, they found all these these intricate connections. Uh, You know, we, we think of them as ligaments, Right, that, that connect this to this, and they understood how muscles work. They understood that there was a connection there and a pulling. They had, they had a, a fairly sophisticated notion of, of joints and sinews. And as a result, they understood that what it takes to make a body work is for all of them to be in concert. And it, 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 when everything's working um, together, when it's all got the right power, and they had some weird physics on this that we probably wouldn't agree with, but when it's all working with the right power, a body moves and, and, and grows exactly as it ought to. And when that's working, when that's working, Paul says, 
It causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And what that means is, it, it's sort of like when, when we go and, and we, you know, you, they have, see people sit down and eat their food, and they start out as a little kid, and everything's working, everything's working, and they're eating, and growing, and eating, and growing. Everything's working together, and the whole body participates in its own growth. It comes up because everything's working as it ought to. And so the, the, the vision that Paul has is these, these um, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, they descend into Ephesus and they start growing up these people. Hey, here's the truth. Here's what the real story is. Here's who God is. And these people, they receive it and then they start sharing it amongst each other and every person finds that they have a special place in this community. And when they're all working together and they're all doing exactly what they're called to do, the whole body, the whole thing grows and expands. It thrives. The body is united. It's protected. And so we see that for the body to work right, in your note sheets, we all must be grown by someone and growing others. For the body to work right, we all must be grown by someone and growing others. I've had a lot of people grow me in my life. A lot of them came along at different times in different places, and, and, and what they had is what I needed at that moment to get to this next place of faith, this next place of maturity. There were people that had to drag me out of myself when I was younger. And then there were people who had to give me a commission and say, go and do what you've been called to do. There have been people who said, no, Tom, that's not true. This is The question is, you know, at 35 years of age, I got to ask myself, owing so much to so many, have I been growing others? Have I been really taking and then giving? Sometimes when I look at my record, I'm just not sure that I'm doing a very good job. And that brings us to some final considerations, some things that we as a congregation need to think about right now. Right now, who is growing you up? Who is taking you from where you are and making you a little bit taller, a little bit closer to who Christ is? I can name a few people in my life right now that are challenging me and pushing me to become who God has asked me to be. Who are teaching me new things. Who are pushing me to embrace new responsibilities. Who's growing you? I know that in my life I've definitely wanted to be in a place where nobody is. Because that includes accountability. It includes somebody being given the authority in my life to tell me I'm wrong. I hate that. I suggest most of us dislike it. It's unnatural. And yet... It's how the job gets done. It's how God set up the church. So who in your life is growing you? And then the second question is, who are you growing up? Who are you growing? There's someone who's investing in you. Who are you investing in? Who are you dumping the truth onto? Who looks to you as kind of a pastor or a teacher in some capacity? You don't have to have the title to do the work to pass on the message and the truth. 
Who are you demonstrating for? Who's looking at you and saying, That's, that person's way closer to Jesus than I am, and if I can do this, this, and this, I can be a little bit more like Christ. Who is that? If you are not involved in that kind of relationship with somebody, I suggest that, that we've got, we, what we have is that we've got this body, right? And it's working, but the arm over here is in a sling. And so we're, you know, you, you imagine trying to eat in the sling. You're like, ah, ah, you can't get there. The body doesn't work. It can't grow itself up because I've got arms over here that aren't doing their function. They're not working right. If we're going to make this place thrive, if we are going to guard the unity of the spirit, if we are going to protect that fragile thing, then God has given a very clear plan of how it works. Pastors and teachers and evangelists and apostles and prophets come into your life and they grow you. And then you share, you spread it on. It's multi-level marketing. <laughs> it is, it really is. Uh, <laughs> the first multi-level marketing was, uh, was the church. True fact. Let's get our MLM going. All right? Let's recruit some people, okay? If you want to grow up or you want to start growing somebody else, our church is the place for you, and here's why. As we move forward into, um, into the fall, we are, we are coming up for pla- uh, places where people can be a part of a small group. I'm going to say it over and over. You're going to get sick of it right now. Small groups. If there's something that you're passionate about, tell me. And you want to share that with people. And you want to bring them along. Talk to me. If you want to open your home and you want to see if there's some people in your life, they don't have to be a part of this church. In fact, in a lot of ways, I'd prefer that they're not. People in your life who need to grow, who need to be brought along. Someone for whom you can deploy your gift, your desires, your love. So that you're not just growing up over here, but you're bringing people along. Or maybe, on the other hand, you recognize there's a place in your life where you've got to grow. Something's wrong. It's not working. You don't look like Jesus over here. And you want to grow in that way. Let me know. Let's find a place for you to grow up in that. I don't know what it looks like exactly, but let's do it. We, we, we have to thrive. We've been called to be this working body where everything's in sync. Everything's happening. Growing up in the spirit. That's what we've been called to do. That's who we've been called to be. Let's do it. Because when we do, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace becomes the tightest, most joyful expression of God's kingdom on earth. And it's what we can have here. As I pray, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and we can prepare to close out our service. Father, I pray that you will show us the full height of Jesus, our standard, our measure that you will grow us up into him. That, that we will be poured into by people in life who function as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. That they'll grow us up, show us the truth, energize us, catalyze us, and that we'll then go and we'll grow up others. God, we ask for that thriving body, that growth where we become mature, complete, just like you, a sign to the world that their ways and that their 
attitudes and that their values are not the right ones, but instead point, point to your kingdom. Realize it in part and create great expectation of eternal future. We thank you for your son who makes it possible in his redemption. We thank you for your spirit who energizes and empowers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.